we've kind of lost that stillness, the patience, the commitment. And we've also lost the understanding that this is a hugely important skill. Uh, it's the difference between seeing and looking, hearing and listening are different things. And we've lost sight of that a little bit. So we don't teach it in schools. Uh, people are expected just to pick it up as they go along. And they don't because life is so fast, so intense, so multi-leveled. There's always something to do. They haven't got time to listen. So we don't. Hello, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, if I asked you to list all of the skills that you learned at school, what are some of the things that would make that list? or at least some of the things that you could remember. For me, it would be things like uh, the square root of a triangle, algebra. Obviously, being British, the long and bloody history of the empire and probably a bunch of fun facts about frogs. Now, the next question you can probably see coming. Outside of the occasional hero moment at trivia, how many times have you found yourself actually using any of those skills? Today's conversation on Inside Influence is a second-time guest, always some of my favourites. The first time I had the pleasure of speaking to him, it was to discuss the universal challenge of how to be heard, which is something I know we all struggle with in various different situations in our lives. This time, we wanted to flip the focus and concentrate instead on the largest and probably most undiscussed part of that equation, which is our ability to hear somebody else. And... It all came from one question, one question that he asked me during that original conversation, and it was this one. How come, with all the skills that we learn at school, the most fundamental skill, the one that's the most likely to dictate the success of all of our relationships, our career, businesses, and parenting, never gets taught? And that is the art of listening. Not hearing, which is something we do involuntarily, and we'll get into that, but the art of truly listening and processing the world of another human being. Today, I am thrilled to welcome back Julian Treasure, founder of The Sound Agency and author of How to Be Heard. Julian's five TED Talks have been watched more than 80 million times, 80 million times. His latest, How to Speak So That People Want to Listen, is now in the top 10 TED Talks of all time. He's also regularly featured in the world's media, including Time Magazine, The Economist, the BBC, and the list goes on. Today, we dive into the deep, deep world of listening, including the difference between listening and hearing. We touched on that just before, and how listening is maintaining a position of curiosity. The circle of influence, why the way I speak impacts the way you listen, and the way you listen impacts the way that I speak. The four C's of conscious listening, our relationship to silence, and this one's big for me right now, how most of us either jump on it, try to fill it, or retreat from it, and why how we deal with silence is often the key to gravitas, to having gravity. The four leeches that suck the power out of any communication and how to avoid them, and how to hear the people around you with fresh ears, 
by avoiding falling into what he would call listening autopilot. Now I know listening autopilot in my head it usually sounds something like, oh yeah, I know how this is going to go. So it's interesting to take a moment and actually think about how listening autopilot sounds in your own minds. For anyone that wants to go even further into Julian's work on listening and how to speak so that you are heard, he also has a new course called How to Speak So That People Want to Listen. On his website, speaklistenb.com, speaklistenb.com, we'll also put it in the show notes. He gave me a sneak peek, a sneak tour, and I spent minimum two or three hours going through that course. And I can promise you it will change the way you approach every single piece of communication in your life. So usually at this point, I would pick a subset of people that I that I think this podcast would resonate most with. But today I'm not going to do that. This one is for everyone, every single day. So start now. Let's turn off the distractions if you can. Settle in with a curious mindset and dive into a world where our ability to stop talking long enough to listen will literally dictate the quality of every single one of our relationships and every single one of our results. Enjoy my conversation with the sound master himself, Julian Treasure. Welcome to the podcast for a second time, Julian Treasure. Thank you, Julie. It's lovely to be back. I I, lo- I love doing second time interviews. There's just something about having asked the the top level questions that you, you get to go a little bit deeper. So I'm really thrilled, really thrilled to have you back. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, I'm just going to kick off. We've, I've already asked you the question that I usually ask first off. So a question that actually got me thinking when I was thinking about what you do with your day to day is what's the most influential idea that you've heard recently? Well, I think the thing that's exercising me a lot at the moment and um, which seems to be very uh, widespread in the tech community, um, TED people and so forth, is that there's an audio revolution coming. And as a sound guy, that really piqued my interest. Um, I mean, I'm I guess we're helping to make it at the sound agency, uh, but it does seem like the tide is finally turning away from communicating with our fingers and our eyes, which is, you know, when you think about it, it's quite distracting. You have to stop, look down. A lot of people walk around in the street looking at handheld screens, bumping into people um, and so forth. Uh, Well, we're moving away from that. We're going to be using voice to search, to communicate with the internet, with the internet of things, with bots, with other people, of course. And it's going to become much more natural and seamless and easy. So smart speakers are just one element of that. I mean, there are huge numbers of them in America. I think 80 million American households have got smart speakers now. And by smart speakers, you mean Alexa, Google Home? Yes, things which are effectively audio interfaces, in the home so you just walk around and use your code word and switch on lights or the tv or listen to music or call somebody or I mean, a panoply of different things you can do simply voice activated now the wonderful thing about this and the reason incidentally that for example the radio industry is still doing very very well even though it's the second oldest form of communication and you know people would have thought it had 
it would have been smashed by media fragmentation and the internet and so forth. The wonderful thing is when you're speaking and listening, you can do something else. You could drive a car, you can do the ironing, you can have a bath, you know. So the, the medium of radio, the audio uh, communication channel is very convenient, very natural. And that is about to happen. There's billions been invested in uh, voice uh, synthesis and speech recognition so that we're getting to a stage where machines can understand us pretty well. And with AI, they're going to be able to respond in increasingly convincing and useful ways to us. So I think in a few years, uh, people will be going, apps? What are apps? You, you had hundreds of things on your, on your device to do stuff when all I have to say is, Fred, which will be your intelligent agent, uh, I'm going to Brazil next week. Could you check out flights for Wednesday and um, see if there's availability in that hotel I stayed in last time? It'll be natural voice queries like that. You won't have to be filling in passwords and addresses and credit card details and so forth. It'll all be seamless. And that, I think, is a future which a lot of us who are bored of all that process are looking forward to greatly. You know what I find really interesting about that is that we've, we've, we're coming to a place in technology now where we've effectively figured out how to outsource listening to a device you know we've we've figured out how to create a device that is able to listen to us deeply understand you know eventually our moods our contacts remember conversations from the past all the things that we hope you know our deepest relationships or our colleagues will do for us which brings me on quite neatly to my next question which is you know you have said before that that sound influences us profoundly it's, and, you know, we know that to be true, you know, the, the sound of your child laughing and the impact that it has on you, the sound, you can tell when someone's angry just by the, the tension in their voice. So if all of this intel is here and all we need to do is listen, why, why don't we listen? Why are we so bad at listening? Well, I'm afraid technology has been a big part of that process of you know, unlistening, if you like. Um, I'm, I'm always saying on stage, we're losing our listening. It starts at an early age. We don't teach it in school, so we don't value it as a skill. And that's really, uh, I think, happened over the last three or 4,000 years since we invented writing, which is an immensely powerful form of communication, of course. You know, it's fixed, it's publishable and disseminatable. So some of the biggest ideas in the world and the greatest revolutions in society have been propagated by the written word being printed and published and passed on uh, it it fixes knowledge so suddenly we accelerate you don't have to remember stuff you can read it and check it back and so forth so some amazing advances due to writing but i think we've got a bit writing obsessed and as a result of this the the premium on careful listening has disappeared particularly as we invented audio and then video recording so now you know, don't worry about that. We can check it on YouTube later. They'll, it'll be there. Or, uh, you know, he's got a book. I'll just look at the book later and so on and so forth. So that's one aspect of it. And then the technology of screens, keyboards, instant access to so much information and the intensity and the overwhelm of modern life, which has been brought about by that window that our technology gives us, 
Um, it's created this frenetic, haven't got time for anything, have to be doing two things at once kind of feeling. FOMO, um, fear of missing out is in there, of course. And as a result, our attention uh, is shorter than ever and it's distributed across more than one thing. Now, Scott Peck, the American author, said, you cannot truly listen to another human being and do anything else at the same time. And I absolutely agree with that. So that's where we've gone wrong, uh, because we do a huge amount now of partial listening. You know, I am listening to you. No, you're sending a text and that's not listening. That's you know, a little bit of your attention is not listening. So we've kind of lost that stillness, the patience, the commitment. And we've also lost, I think, the understanding that this is a hugely important skill. It's not a capability like hearing or breathing or seeing. It's the difference between seeing and looking. Hearing and listening are different things. And we've lost sight of that a little bit. So we don't teach it in schools. Uh, people are expected just to pick it up as they go along and they don't because life is so fast so intense so multi-leveled um, there's always something to do I haven't got time to listen so we don't um, and I would also say there's a lot of noise now as well we are a noisy species my old friend Bernie Krauss the brilliant sound recordist divides sound into three classes geophony the sound of the planet which is wind water volcanoes you know all that kind of thing it's been going on for millions and millions or billions of years biophony which is the sound of nature he calls it the great animal orchestra everything in their place and then anthropophony which is the sound of us and that is increasingly not a very nice sound and so we become numb to sound we get into the habit of suppressing traffic noise and aircraft noise and construction noise and screeching train wheels and whatever else it might be, um, horns beeping. I just saw a story about Mumbai and the fact that they're trying to reduce the amount of horn that's used in India. Everybody drives around with their hand on the horn almost continually. And people in Mumbai apparently have hearing, which is 20 years older than their actual age because of the noise level degrading their hearing. So, yes, we just stop listening in all of those circumstances combine to give us this numbness and a lack of attention to this incredibly important skill. Mm. The, the numbness that you were talking about, that, that sense of almost disconnection from sound, from the overwhelm of sound. You know, I, I see it, I see it with my, with my husband, you know, the, the constant mantra when you're married of you're not listening. I don't feel like you're listening to I had a meeting just this afternoon with a CEO and their direct reports and they were looking at a survey that had come back from their client group um, as to how effective their relationships were and the largest piece of feedback that arrived was that I we don't feel like you're listening you're waiting for the opportunity to speak and tell us your expertise but you're not actually listening and so across the board we seem to be numbing out Different sounds, but you know, specifically for this conversation, the sounds of other people trying to communicate with us. Let's let's just start with that definition because we know it. The definition between listening and hearing, because as a receiver, we know it feels different to be heard versus to be you know actually listened to. What what is that definition? 
Well, hearing is a capability. You hear everything. And it's a very intimate sense. Sound waves go inside your head, in your ears, and vibrate your eardrums. And it's a miracle that little membrane decodes everything from Beethoven's Ninth to, um, you know, a car horn. Um, it's absolutely amazing. The, the sense is an incredible sense. I could talk about it for a long time. Um, it is your primary warning sense. You hear a sphere all around you, 360 degrees. I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at seeing what's behind me, which is why... Uh, there's not a vertebrate on the planet that doesn't have hearing. There are several that don't have sight. And uh, so hearing is a very important hardwired warning sense. And indeed, it goes very deep, very fast, far faster than you get to process it. Your hearing will warn you of danger. Any sudden or unexplained sound will cause an explosion of cortisol, noradrenaline, you know, fatty acids enter your blood. You're ready to fight or flee way before it gets to your cortex and you start going, what was that? It's faster than sight processing, actually, your, your sound processing uh, capability. Um, eventually, it does become cortical. And then a lot of it is about two things as we move from hearing to listening. First, you select what to pay attention to. So there's a process of selection. You hear everything. You only listen to a part of it. And that makes your reality different from mine. And you're even um, you're even hearing while you're sleeping. I remember hearing. I remember hearing you say, "Yes, that you it's know, on it's all the time, twenty four seven. We are we are hearing, but not actually listening." Absolutely right. You have no earlids, so you're hearing uh, permanently all the time. It's by many accounts the first sense to be activated in the womb, just uh, twelve weeks after conception. We hear through every bit of our body. Um, you know, the famous percussionist Dame Evelyn Glennie uh, plays with symphony orchestras, even though she's profoundly deaf. She learned to listen with her whole body, with every cell. And we all do that. It's just that we're not very conscious of it because most of us are focused on the ears. So you select things to pay attention to. And the second part, which translates hearing into listening, is that you make that sound mean something. So I describe listening as making meaning from sound. And that's all about associations. Your brain is going, have I heard that or something like it before? Does it remind me of an experience? What do I expect to happen as a result of that sound? Uh, is it pleasurable or is it unpleasurable? And so on and so forth. There's a lot of evaluation. It's, it's very holographic, the way you process sound. It happens all over the brain. There isn't just a hearing center or a listening center. Um, because your brain's doing lots of different things at the same time. It affects your emotions deeply. It affects how well you can process other information. It affects your physiology and it affects how you behave. So there's four really powerful effects of sound, partly conscious and partly unconscious. So part of it's the sound you hear. Much more of it is the sound you listen to, you select to pay attention to, and then you ascribe meaning to. And we all do that through this set of filters that I talk about, um, which start when we're born and which color the way we listen. So everybody's set of filters is different, different values, attitudes, beliefs, intentions, emotions, expectations, um, different language, different culture. It all colors the way we listen to the world. So everybody's listening is unique. And that's what I, I do a lot of um, communication about to people who speak and for whom speaking is important. It's really important to understand that each individual's listening 
is unique and it's such a big mistake to assume everybody listens like I do you'll often miss the target completely if you assume that if you start listening to the listening then you can speak more accurately and actually appropriately and really get the ball over the net to the other person let's let's just dive I wasn't I was going to cover this later but let's we're here now so let's just dive into that a second um, I love the language that you use around that, which is most of us on, are on autopilot. We we listen on autopilot. We listen through um, a number of different filters. You know, have I had this conversation before? How many times have I had it? What am I hoping to achieve out of this conversation? How quickly can I get out of this? My, you know, my culture. I mean, you named a lot there. And for anybody who's interested in more of Julian's work, there's, there's a whole list of filters that impact our listening. What are the dangers then of, and how frequently do we go into conversations on autopilot? Well, I think most of the time that's the problem. Um, you know, I talk in in the book, in the course, in all my work, I talk about the four C's of effective listening. And the first C is consciousness, being aware that you're doing something as opposed to simply going in and um, being with the other person, probably with six other things going on and thinking about what you're going to say next. As you said, I call that speech writing. That's not listening. That's, you know, speech writing. Um, so we very often will go into conversations with this thing on autopilot, as you say, with a, with a numbness, without the awareness that I'm practicing here, a skill, an art. It's a thing I can get better at. It's a thing I can practice. It's a thing that I can improve. It's a thing that I can become a master of. And that is hugely important in life. It affects everybody's outcomes. Everybody listening to this, you know, if you, if you become a master of listening, then you are positively going to affect your happiness, your effectiveness in whatever you do, and your well-being. I have no doubt of that whatsoever. And so it is a very important skill to master. And unfortunately, yes, in relationship, uh, in work, uh, in all sorts of situations, we go in with this thing just on autopilot. You know, we're snoozing in the back of the plane somewhere, not actually in the cockpit at all. Would you, you know, part of the thing that I have learned from your work is is the almost a definition of listening, and I'd be interested to know if this sounds right to you. You know, listening is to come from a position of curiosity. Absolutely. That's the second C of the four. <laughs> there so you go. I see. Right. I'm a good student. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, so, yes, consciousness is the first and most important thing. Curiosity is a fabulous listening position, if you like. Uh, ferocious curiosity. I might learn something here. I don't agree with this person, but I wonder how they got to believe that, that kind of thing. Barack Obama, I think, said, I like to listen to people, especially when I disagree with them which is a wonderful statement. Um, so curiosity is absolutely brilliant as a place to listen from. And incidentally, I expect people are now going, what are the other two C's? Uh, compassion is a very important one. Um, so listening to understand, listening um, with some sense that, you know, although I don't agree with this person and it can be very difficult sometimes, um, you know, I, they've been on a journey. There's a reason they believe what they believe. And the final C is commitment, which is all about listening, taking time and effort. It's an act. It's a skill. 
It's not something that you can leave in the background. So it does mean you have to say, I'm going to listen and make a commitment to listen. Um, and it, for anybody listening to this, by the way, I think a great exercise after you hear this podcast, when you go back to your family, maybe this evening, would be to give the next person 100% of your attention. Absolutely promise yourself, I'm going to listen, make that commitment. And you'll probably find the response will be, what are you doing? Because they won't be used to it. You know, it's not the way that we tend to converse with each other. We tend to give in, in relationships, we, we give such scant attention to each other. Uh, we're thinking about other things. We've heard it all before. I know where you're coming. I know what you're going to say. You know, listening to somebody as if for the first time is a wonderful gift to give in relationship. If you've been around for a long time, that's a great intention as well to listen as if for the first time. I had um, I had an experience recently where somebody somebody said the sentence and it, it stuck with me. They said, my intention today is just to listen to you. Wonderful. And there's some that it's almost it is it's kind of disconcerting. Somebody says it, and you're so not used to it that you suddenly think, "Oh my goodness, I'm going to think really carefully about what I want to say now." Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's there's a quality to the intention. There's a laser type focus to the intention that somebody brings to you that is incredible. That creates a depth of connection, of trust, and of credibility that I, I don't think many other skills or, you know, suddenly jumping in to, to talk about your credibility or your expertise can really bring to the table. Mm, definitely, definitely. And intention is very important with sound. Intention and um, making meaning, you know, association, those are very, very important aspects of making sound and of receiving sound uh, because we can colour what we make something mean. We can change the way it affects us by altering our intention and our associate, being conscious of our associations. So those are two great things. But really consciousness is, is the key to all of this. Uh, the moment we walk through the door of consciousness here, which is, you know, if you want, it's a subset of being generally mindful or aware or present or conscious. The moment we become conscious, we're doing this thing, this wonderful thing called listening, so much becomes possible. Mm. I've actually found even with my daughter, who's three and a half, she even understands. If I, if she's in the depths of despair or having a tantrum, even just saying the sentence, I am listening, you know, getting down to her level and saying, I am listening, just cuts, just cuts through somehow. Even she yes. feels the quality of that connection or yes, the intention of that connection. Yep. There's a there's a listening position I talk about. Uh, I call it active listening. I mean, there are different names for these things, which is um, using the phrase what I hear you say is and then repeating back exactly what the person said, which is brilliant with children, um, because, you know, very often children's experiences that they're they're not listened to. Um, many adults are di relatively dismissive of children. And, you know, what can I learn? It's a child. And, and that's such a sad way to be, especially with your own child where you can learn a huge amount from them. And so that if somebody's upset, be it a child, be it an adult, and I'll tell you a story about that. Um, a while back I had a, a driving incident where I had to swerve to avoid something. And the guy behind me was overtaking and nearly had an accident as a result. 
And we came to a set of traffic lights and stopped. And he was behind me and the, the lights were red and he got out. Oh, dear. And he came around and hammered on my window. So I wound it down. Not a lot, but <laughs> enough. And he started shouting at me and he was absolutely furious. I mean, obviously, he'd been very frightened by what had happened, but he was really, really angry. And, you know, if I had responded with self-justification and self-righteousness and equal anger, then we would have had a flaming round. He probably would have started attacking my car, I should think, because he was so cross. Instead of that, um, I used active listening, which some people call reflective listening. I say, I hear that you're very angry. I hear that this happened. You know, okay, I can understand that this happened. And every time I reflected back exactly what he said, the steam ceased coming out of his ears a little bit more. And after a not that long, you know, it, we were at a traffic light. We didn't have that long. He calmed right down and uh, you know, actually apologized for being so angry. And I said, do you want to hear my side of it? And explained that this had happened, you know, somebody had come out from the pavement, I'd had to swerve. And, uh, you know, I hadn't had any alternative. And I was really sorry it had affected him, blah, blah, blah. And we, I wound down the window, we shook hands, apologized to each other and moved on. Listening and upset tend to be inversely related. They are, uh, they are the antidote to each other in many ways. So the more I listen, the less upset you will be. Or conversely, the more upset I am, the less I can listen to you. So being listened to is a very palliative, calming experience for somebody who's upset. It, it's, it's base one in letting go of the upset. You're being heard. And that is such a rare experience. Something you just touched on there um, in terms of that story. You know, obviously that was a, he was feeling a lot of very intense emotions at that point in time. And actually I've got in my notes here to ask you about the You've said that the aim, one of the aims of listening is to be as comfortable or to be comfortable with appropriate, healthy expressions of emotion. And I read that line and I could feel myself go, <gasps> you know, because we, that's really hard. You know, most of us retreat from displays of emotion, be that, you know, especially negative emotion, if we have to deliver difficult news if we have to have a challenging conversation if we're receiving feedback from a client we're trying to keep who hasn't had a great experience in the past that's our fear that it's going to get you know quote unquote emotional how how do you i'm trying to find something practical how how do you find a level of comfort with again appropriate healthy i like that terminology no one wants anyone to be in a dangerous or unhealthy situation but how do you find a level of comfort with healthy expressions of emotion so that you can sit with them, hold a space for them and hopefully transform them into a better connection going forward? Well, it does take healthy boundaries, knowing where you stop and somebody else starts. And that's not always easy. Um, you know, I talk about the four leeches in my work. Um, and one of them is uh, fixing, which is this um, lack discomfort with emotion um which really comes from a kind of fear that it you know i can't deal with this or um you know it's it's not how i want to be surrounded by a lot of us have had i mean i'm i'm one i'm i'm not particularly comfortable with displays of raw emotion uh, i was brought up in a very calm english household um 
where you know it was uh, not really proper to show wear your heart on your sleeve and and be very emotional um other people in other cultures of course are much more comfortable with it um latin cultures tend to be more volatile and more expressive uh, that's a big generalization i know but um nevertheless there is a cultural meme here um whereas as you go to europe and particularly northern europe it tends to be a little bit more formal and less expressive um so i think the first thing is to have that boundary to recognize that what's happening in front of you is not associated with you not to take on board responsibility um you know you're upset i can understand you're upset this awful thing happened i can empathize sympathize um you know i can i can be with you in this and listen to you in this um the the thing that can be quite damaging i think is the fixing response which is don't cry don't be upset because sometimes people have to cry and people have to be upset and i did say healthy and appropriate so this is not about abusive angry people um you know if that's the situation then you know people need to be careful and leave if it's dangerous to them uh, this is about somebody who's got a healthy response to something that's happened to them you know a misfortune has happened they're upset about it that's normal and what we can do is put an arm around the shoulders we can be there for them we can listen what we don't have to do is say don't do that because sometimes that process is necessary in order to come out the other side and not have something that hangs on with that person forever so it's the fixing um and I, there's a story i tell in the book about fixing which is to do with my aunt and i think it's a very good example uh, she grew up um this was back in the 20s this would have been um and she was the oldest she was the only child and her her mother fell pregnant and it was all very exciting and they painted up the spare room as a nursery and everybody's talking about the coming brother or sister and so forth and came the day they went off to the hospital and she was left behind with uh, a, a family a relative looking after her wildly excited um a couple of days later they came back from the hospital no baby nothing was said ever the room was redecorated and life just moved on the water's closed and that left her untrusting she never trusted people she found it very hard to trust people after that uh, forevermore because she knew something had happened but nobody told her now obviously the parents had thought well we won't tell her about it you know we don't want to upset her she's only a child but that kind of fixing approach don't be upset we don't want to upset you that can lead to all sorts of damage so i think it's very important to allow that you know if you're like me and it's difficult to deal with emotion sometimes you really have to challenge yourself and just grit your teeth and you know sit there and have a little mantra like this is not about me this is me being there for them um all they need is to be heard understood and valued right now and they need to go through this so uh, it's it's countering that natural tendency to negate the emotion and the the, the things to watch out for don't be upset don't cry and so forth Now you had talked about the the four leeches which the term leeches I think refers to you know that suck all of the power and the energy out of communication um yeah so one of those is obviously fixing mhm 
Can you give me any of the others? Yes. Well, there's two very powerful ones uh, which are in play a great deal. And the first of those is looking good. And that's something we all like naturally. I mean, nobody likes looking bad or very few people. So it's a natural intention to look good. But if it becomes dominant, if it becomes what you're about, then it really does rob you of power in your speaking. If your speaking is self-aggrandizing uh, or always defensive uh, or, um, you know, you go on stage in front of people or in, stand up in a room in front of people and it's all about how impressive you can be and getting kudos and getting approbation from everybody, people can see through that. They can feel it and it does rob the power um, from what you're saying. So what's so looking the good, antidote to that? Um, humility. Yeah, I think humility is wonderful. And remembering when you are in front of somebody, it's not about you. And if you want a mantra, that's the mantra to have that counteracts the looking good thing. It's not about you. It's about them. And then we come back to curiosity and compassion. Even when I'm standing on stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people, it's not about me. It's about I've got a gift, I hope, which I'm trying to give to these people. And it's about did I get that across to them? Did I inspire, inform, entertain, whatever it is I'm trying to do? Uh, it's not about them thinking I'm great. It's about me giving them the best gift I can give them, which is not a waste of their time or my time. So that's a very powerful way to be. Um, and, you know, looking good tends to give rise to things like, and I don't know if you've ever met anybody who's professionally unimpressible. Professionally, professionally unimpressible. I've never heard of that thing. Uh, well, you know, somebody you'll, you'll say, uh, I've just had this amazing experience. And they go, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I know. I know. I know. The phrase I know is a giveaway. Um, if you know everything, if everything is I know, what are you going to learn? Not very much. Um, I remember meeting somebody at TED who spent some time in Paris and um, was with a group of people who were kind of like that. And I don't know if that's true of all Parisians or just that, that particular uh, little subculture. But every time she would come back and say, I've just been to Notre Dame, the windows are amazing. They go, of course, you know. So it was kind of losing face to be impressed by anything. And there are quite a lot of people in the world who like to appear very knowledgeable, to look good in that way. And if you're impressed or wide-eyed with amazement, it means that you didn't know that or you didn't have that experience or, you know, this is a new thing. And in some way, that worldview means that you're diminished. You, in order to be, you know, bigger and better and so forth, uh, you have to know everything and be full of knowledge and the font of all wisdom and have all the experience and so forth. I mean, another aspect of that is um, competitive speaking which is something I've come across quite a lot where I would say, you know, I'm going to Greece on holiday. And the other person goes, oh, yeah, I've been to Greece five times. Mm. That's my little bit of joy gone. That's a joy kill. And, you know, that kind of trumping um, of what's been said, always having to be bigger and better, that's about looking good again. So these things are not great in relationship. I mean, it's pretty hard to be in relationship with somebody who's got to be better all the time. Um, and humility, compassion, uh, those are great accesses to avoiding that. If we like 
anything more than looking good, then it would be being right. And that's the second leech, being right. And it's the most powerful one, actually. And it's driving a huge amount of what we see in the world today, you know, the politics of division and hatred, uh, polarization. Um, I mean, I, I feel quite guilty because I'm British and I think we started this whole thing with the Brexit campaign, which was full of really the politics of hate. Uh, it was full of smearing the opposition, um, lost contact with the truth, uh, with any kind of integrity. And that seems to have translated itself now into populist politics in all sorts of countries. We're seeing it right now in America uh, with a lot of mud being slung in all directions. There's no effort, it seems, to listen or to understand. It's about shouting and demeaning people. And that's a long, slippery slope if we're into this being right thing. Because the easiest way to be right is to make somebody else wrong. That's very simple. If I make you wrong, then I'm righter than you. And that makes me feel better about myself. And that's what we do a great deal when we're consuming media. I think we're in a merry dance with the media now where there's this kind of addiction to outrage. Somebody's to blame. Somebody must be punished for this awful thing. This is outrageous. You know, that kind of drawing yourself up and puffing out your chest. That's about being right and judging somebody to be wrong. So it's a very, very slippery slope, which leads from caricaturing and depersonalization of other people just to, I mean, it's the opposite of that Barack Obama quote, isn't it? You know, I, I like listening to people only when I agree with them. And at the bottom of that slope, you know, you have ISIS. If I disagree with you, I'll kill you. And that's not the way we should be going. Politicians go off and have talks. I wish they'd go off and have listens instead. And I wish that listening would become part of the political culture again. Once it was, we had oratory, we had politicians standing up and, you know, delivering rhetoric for hours and people listening. Now they get 30 seconds if they're lucky. And this kind of dumbing down and impatience and culture of interrupting, I think is all very dangerous for the world. I, d I did a TEDx talk a few years ago in the Houses of Parliament in London called The Sound of Democracy. And I was arguing that listening is actually the sound of democracy because Listening is the doorway to understanding. And if we understand, we can have civil society where we are able to exist in peaceful disagreement, civilized disagreement. Without listening, then you get Rwanda, where suddenly you're murdering your neighbor that you've lived next to for 20 years. So, you know, that slope is available to us. And I really hope that's not the way we go. That's why I'm passionate about listening. There was there was so much that you just said that I would love to that I would love to hit on. The you've just remembered last night or overnight was the State of the Union address, and you know one of the things that I woke up to this morning were images of I think it was Nancy Pelosi ripping up a copy of Donald Trump's speech behind him as he was as he was speaking. Now you know I am make no secret of the fact that I'm not Donald Trump's largest fan. However, you know, I agree that we actually tying it back to, to something that you have said, you know, you talk about the circle, you know, how you listen impacts how I listen. The way I speak impacts the way you listen and the way you listen impacts the way that I speak. And I feel like we are 
in this circle now of teaching each other not to listen on repeat. I'm not listening because you haven't listened. I will refuse to listen because I don't feel like you're listening to me. Yeah. And so we seem to go full circle here and then come back to almost this counterintuitive notion that the best way for us to, to teach anyone how to treat us is to treat them that way. And regardless of whose side you're on politically to, to step back from the fact that we need to listen, whether we agree, disagree, approve, disapprove, we need to listen because unless we listen, we haven't earned the right to be listened to. I agree so much. Um, I, I think whatever you believe about Donald Trump's politics and policies, it would be pretty hard to argue that he's a good listener. Um, he's he's definitely a good shouter. And unfortunately, if you end up not listening, you know, in a room full of people not listening, you end up with everybody just shouting at the top of their voice. You get cacophony. Nobody's communicating. Nothing will get done. And um, ultimately, the only political system which works when people aren't listening is dictatorship. And then you just have to hope it's a benevolent dictator, uh, which very rarely is the case, unfortunately. So democracy doesn't work if people don't listen, if we can't compromise, if we can't comfortably live with somebody next door who fundamentally disagrees with us. And, you know, in the UK, we've got that going on right now where there's a kind of uh, leaver's remorse going on amongst what are called Remainers because um, we've just left the European Union. And there's a sort of jubilant triumphalism amongst the leavers and Never the twain shall meet. It seems that the, the two parties or the two factions have no way of resolving this between them. There isn't a sort of, OK, maybe we were right about this and wrong about this. And we understand your point of view on this. And, you know, it, the South African Truth Commission, I think, is, is a rare shining beacon in a world where most of the time we're not prepared to listen to people we disagree with. We go out on the Internet, not browsing, but seeking validation for our own views there you are i knew i was right you know that that's what we do a lot and that's one of the reasons why i think people have become more and more polarized again it's about the effect of technology you know, stopping us from listening and uh, just allowing us to dig for proof that we're right is there are there any tools there there, there may not be um are there any tools there for anybody who's listening who either has to walk into a room or in the future somehow may find themselves in a situation where you you are being outshouted? As you said, you know, the Donald Trump method of, of volume, you know, force versus fierce. Um, are there ways of being heard in those moments or should you really just, you know, pack up, move on, find better pastures and hope that it doesn't become a dictatorship? Yes. Well, you can't force somebody to listen. That's the first thing. Um, so the only thing you can do is seek to have a civilized contract with them. I'm a great fan of asking people for their time and uh, making a contract like that. So I have something I really want to talk about with you. Do you have 10 minutes? And if the answer is yes, then you have a little contract there, don't you? And they're kind of agreeing to listen to you for 10 minutes or to be in at least to be in conversation with you for 10 minutes. Uh, we're very inclined to just sort of burst into somebody's life and start talking. 
well, it, they may have stuff going on. They may have just had bad news. They may be thinking about something. They may have some deadline to meet. They may have any any number of different things going on. So it's, I think, discourteous to burst upon somebody and assume they're listening is going to be there for us. I think it's very polite to make a contract. And if you can do that, then that does defuse a lot of what we've been talking about. Uh, it wouldn't be easy to do that with a Donald Trump because, you know, he's got an entourage and so forth. But you know, if you're talking about somebody at work who's bombastic and doesn't listen very much, uh, most people, if you are upfront about it and you ask in that kind, calm way, will give you the time. And then you have a right if they start bashing away. You have a right in that time to say it's really important to me to have you listen to me. Would you be prepared to do that? Oh, that's a powerful question. Would you be prepared to do that? Yeah, because you're you're actually stating this is an important thing. You're asking for listening. Overtly asking for listening is a very, very important part of the process with somebody who's not used to it or not very good at it. And um, then, you know, they can say even to the point where you say, look, this is a very important thing I want to get across to you. Do you mind putting everything down and giving me 100 percent of your attention for five minutes, just five minutes? It's pretty hard to refuse a request like that unless you're um, unkind or very self-absorbed. You know, no, I'm watching TV. I mean, if that's the kind of relationship you're in, the questions need to be asked. But uh, most people, when explicitly asked for five minutes of attention, will give it. And it's a rare gift. You know, I, I think I said last time we, we spoke, I think there are billions of people on this planet who've never had the experience of being listened to properly. That is to say, as Scott Peck said, 100% of somebody's attention. You know, you can't listen to another human being and do anything else. Really, you can't really truly listen. So that's a rare gift. And it's a gift you can give, which is generous and wonderful to your family, to your friends, to your colleagues. That is to say, empty your head. It's, it's almost a meditation. Be with the person, look at them, you know, do the rasa exercise that uh, you know, I talk about in the book and in the TED Talks and so forth. Be there, receive, pay, uh, appreciate, summarize, ask, that's giving tremendous attention and you can request it as well, which is very important. I would really like you to listen to me. Do you mind putting down the book and looking at me? That's a beautiful request. That's a really beautiful request. Um, I actually want to flip it now for away from sound to the, the opposite of sound almost, which is our relationship to silence. One of one of the things that I have noticed working, you know, first in the speaking world and, and now in the influence world, you know, where there is a, a, a precedent on gravity or, or gravitas, that we have this really interesting relationship to silence. And we tend to either jump on it, you know, try and fill it with a thousand things, or we retreat from it. We, you know, we, we move away from it as, a, as almost like a frightening entity. And yet, you know, some of the most vital traits of influential people I have noticed is one, their ability to listen, to sit back and to pay very acute, acute attention to what's going, going on, the words that are being spoken, but also their comfort with silence, with being able to leave space for something to, from a speaking point of view, to actually land 
with the person they're trying to communicate with. Do you have any well, any perspectives on the use of silence and also any tools on the use of silences? Well, silence is the baseline for all sound. It's what makes sense of sound. I mean, it's the gaps between the words, the gaps between the notes that actually make the words and the notes make sense to us. Otherwise, it's just a continuous cacophony. And it's the baseline for your hearing as well. So it's really good to recalibrate by reacquainting yourself with silence. It refreshes your ears. So that's, it's an exercise I, I do recommend to everybody to get a few minutes of silence uh, a few times a day to recalibrate. More than that, silence is a very powerful place to come from. It's almost like if you think of silence as, the, as your center, the uh, Elizabethans described conversation as decorated silence. Now, that is a wonderful phrase. And I think that's a, a great way to think about speaking. You know, one of the most common traits, I'm sure you've come across it many times, Julie, and one of the most common traits I see in speakers, particularly nervous speakers, is the gabbling uh, tendency, which is filling every possible second. It's, it's almost like they're on the radio and they're terrified of dead air. So it's ums and errs and ahs and little noises and incessant rapid gabbling which is very hard to understand actually uh, I, I do an exercise on stage when I'm speaking about speaking where I just stop now I won't do it here because dead air on the radio or on podcasts is a little bit discomforting and people start going have I lost the signal and you know and they start changing settings but I can do that on stage I can stop for the longest time I'm talking you know 30 45 seconds that's a long time to be silent and what happens? People sit there looking perfectly comfortable. Many of them are probably thinking, oh, that's nice. He stopped for a bit. And then there's some thinking, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch and so on. Nobody's uncomfortable because I don't look uncomfortable. You know, if you stop and you you look immensely flustered, you go red and start sweating and so forth. People empathize with that and they will start to feel uncomfortable, although in that situation, many, many times, when I've seen somebody forget what they are supposed to be saying, the audience will be very sympathetic. I've seen it happen at TED even. And what happens? People start clapping and encouraging the, uh, the speaker. So uh, silence, I think, is a, is a very powerful thing to be acquainted and comfortable with as your core. If you're a person who's got silence at the core, then you're at peace with yourself. There's a thing in my, in my course uh, which I included uh, which was a wonderful experience I had some years ago. There's an island in one of the smaller Italian lakes, not far from the big ones, Como and Maggio and, and, and so forth. Um, the island is called San Giuliano. And on the island, there's a convent. And around the outside of it, there's a passageway, a walk, a paved walk, which takes about half an hour to go around. It's called the Walk of Silence. So that you are encouraged to walk around it in complete silence. And every few hundred meters you encounter a, a sign which is a meditation so you think about that for the next piece of your walk and it's an absolutely beautiful experience of walking in silence with these meditations uh, where you get things like in the silence you meet yourself and so forth they're wonderful meditations so i've i've run them in the course as a set of slides for people to use um, and it is a wonderful experience to dive into silence and think about what silence is for you. A lot of people do find it quite intimidating because in the silence you do meet yourself. You're the only one there. 
And we do tend to get into a kind of very um, addictive tendency for intense distraction. There are lots of people who find it uncomfortable to walk into a quiet room and who have to turn on something, you know, the TV or um, talk to a smart speaker or whatever it may be. But I do think it's very important to have that baseline relationship where we feel comfortable with silence and then expand out from there and decorate it with our conversation and the sound we make. I also think that it's often a, a sign of respect or I feel it, I receive it as, as a sign of respect if someone has, if I have been speaking to somebody, for them to just have a moment, just a moment of silence after I finish speaking. It's almost just a, a moment of, of going, okay, I'm taking that in, I have heard you, and rather than jumping straight in with my response, I'm actually just going to take a breath for a moment to acknowledge that you have spoken. Indeed, because that tends to mean that they're not speech writing. When somebody interrupts, particularly when somebody interrupts, or bounces back immediately, you know, that tends to indicate that they've been speech writing. And for anybody who's got a, an interrupting nature, and there are plenty of people out there, you know who you are. I have a little exercise for you. It's a very simple exercise. It's not count to 10 or anything structured like that. It is simply to practice every time you speak, taking a deep breath before you speak, just which is about a second, might be a little bit longer than that. But it gives you that absolutely critical moment to breathe in, and as you're breathing in, you might realize the person in front of you is still speaking, which gives you a moment to reflect, do I really want to? Sometimes interrupting is necessary. You know, it's very urgent. They're often a tangent. Uh, they don't understand uh, what they're saying is destructive or going to be damaging or harmful in some way. All sorts of situations where interrupting can be okay, but it does become a habit. You only have to listen to attack journalist media interviews to see how habitual it's now become on the radio. And that's why we get the soundbite politics largely, because politicians know they only get 20 seconds to start talking before somebody interrupts them. But it's a, it's a dangerous way to be if we all start interrupting each other. So I totally agree with you there. I think it's a, it's a lovely thing when somebody gives a moment of silence to reflect and let what you've said land, settle, bed itself down, and then respond. Because when you're listening consciously, that is to say, not speech writing, and you're empty and being with the person, you have to trust your mouth to come up with the right thing to say afterwards and not be composing it during their talking. And that, that's a discipline that takes some practice. And also, it's very hard to know when someone's finished. I think with challenging conversations, with emotional conversations or conversations that contain intense emotion, uh, or even if someone is just shy or struggling to communicate, often if you just give that moment of silence afterwards, they'll think of something else that was important. But if you trample all over them as soon as they've kind of done the first full stop or you think that they finished you'll you'll lose the bit at the end which is sometimes the most profound thing that they had to say definitely and again it's kind of polite to say is there more is there is there anything else you want to say about that and just draw somebody out so that they're really finished uh, it's rare that these days 
unfortunately it's quite rare that we feel we've got the time to do that there's this sort of time pressure all the time um, where we're rushing to do the next thing and it does take effort to be fully present and it's i think it's a very important effort to make for all of us in order to live a happy effective and and well life i'm going to change change topics we're getting to the last couple of questions that i have for you you know, you are a five times TED speaker and, you know, I'm not sure how many millions of views and downloads your, your TED talks have. I haven't added them up, but I do know it's a lot. Is there a process that you go through when it comes to structuring a message? Because I think for most people, when we, when we want to be heard, when our intention is to be heard, to speak clearly, what gets in our way a lot of times is the way that we put that message together in either a complicated or a disjointed way. Is there a simple tool that anyone that's listening can use when the next time they have to go in and hope to be heard to construct their message? Well, that's a complex question with a long, long answer. It's a, it's a whole chapter of my course, actually, because um, I asked Chris Anderson, the, the head of TED, which was more important, content or delivery. And um, if push comes to shove, uh, he said content, because if somebody's delivering earth shattering content in a boring or tedious way, you kind of stay with them. Whereas if somebody's speaking vapid nonsense brilliantly, it's just irritating. And I think that's true. So content is really, really important. A couple of things uh, that I would say are guiding lights. The first is you always speak into a listening. So asking your question, what's the listening I'm going to be speaking into? Is fundamental. That is to say, who are these people? What are their challenges? What are their goals? Uh, what do they need? What have I got which could add to them, change their perspective for the better, uh, or give them tools which are really useful to them, or simply give them a few minutes of delight and amazement? So asking what's the listening is the first thing. Uh, delivering the same speech in the same way to uh, numerous different people is not a recipe for great success. The second thing would be to be very clear about what's the big idea. You know, if you had to summarize the whole thing in 10 words or so, what would it be? Uh, I've seen all sorts of speeches where it's a kind of rambling mess of lots and lots of small points. What's the big idea? If you haven't got a big idea, then it's worth cultivating one and everything hangs off that that becomes the center, also the summation. So there are some basics about devising great content that applies one to one, one to a thousand. It's always worth thinking, even if you do nothing else, it's worth thinking about what's the listening that I'll be speaking into so that you can use appropriate language, choose appropriate content, and also use appropriate delivery with your wonderful instrument we all play the amazing human voice well that that leads me on to my last question which um in terms of anybody who's listening to this and is going to go into the office or into their lounge room or into a political debate tomorrow where they either want to be heard which i would say is most of the time or they really want to consciously try to to listen with more curiosity what's the 
what's the one thing that if you could pick any of the tools, and I know you have many, for them to put into practice, if they just put into practice one thing that would make the biggest difference? Well, I have absolutely no doubt the answer to that is conscious listening. And I think the simplest exercise of all of the exercises um, that I've uh, suggested over the years uh, is probably rasa. If you're talking about conversation with other human beings, rasa is very powerful. A lot of people have come back to me and said this transformed their communication. So receive, appreciate, summarize, ask. And uh, those are the four stages. I explain them in uh, the TED Talk about conscious listening, the third TED Talk. Um, Receive means paying attention. So that's commitment and consciousness. Appreciate is facial expressions, noises that oil the conversation that show you're there with the person. Summarizes the word so, which is a very important word. It closes doors in in the corridor of your conversation. So what we've agreed is this. Is that right? Yes. Or so what I heard you say is this. Did I get you? Is that right? Yes. Well, that door's closed. Now we can move on. Or in a meeting, you know, so what we've all agreed is this. Now we can move on to the, the next topic. So summarize important and asking questions, open ended questions. Why, what, how, when, which, where all of those questions which preclude the answer being yes or no and which open conversation. And if you can't think of anything else, you can just use that one I used earlier. Tell me more about that. And uh, that draws people out. So Rasa, I think, is a really good basis for listening. And of course, in terms of speaking, we've got hail, which is the basis for speaking, honesty, authenticity, integrity and love, which I explain in the fifth TED talk, the one about conscious speaking, powerful speaking. Those two little acronyms, Rasa and Hale, I think if you carry those around with you, uh, then communication really does get transformed. You can't, you can't use a word like love at the end of a, of a practical tool and, and not have me ask more about it. What, what does that look like? It's well-wishing. I'm not talking about romantic love. Oh, it's no, I'm sure it's more from, you know, what does that look like so when we see it, we can recognize it and replicate it? Wishing people well, uh, which is putting their interests first. It's very much what I was saying earlier, not being about you. Um, there's a great exercise for that, which um, was given to me many years ago by a wise old fellow uh, who said, just walk around and think the words bless you. Not religious, just, you know, I wish you well, if you don't even like the phrase bless you. But thinking bless you as you encounter people it does give you a lightness of step, which is very different from when you're walking around thinking bad things about, but get out of my way, you idiot, you know, and, and, and all that stuff that we can fall into thinking, you know, if we're being right and making other people wrong the whole time in our head, it, it's, it, it, it's a kind of, it's not a very pleasant feeling. And you tend to avoid people's eyes as well and not connect with other people. Whereas if you're walking around with the practice of thinking, bless you, person in my way. <laughs> You know, it's a it's a very different way to walk around. And what tends to happen is that you meet people's gaze and you might even smile at somebody. Um, It's a lighter way to live. And very much if you're in communication with somebody, then well wishing, wishing them well is crucial uh, because that's that's the access to compassion. Um, And it allows you to 
speak in a way which is going to be much, much more readily received as opposed to being judgmental or being right and making them wrong or all of the seven deadly sins of speaking, which I talk about in that in that TED talk and in the course. So well-wishing love is very important. And that's the foundation of hail, really. Well, I'm going to take bless you or I wish you well. And what I've written on my notepad here, listening is the sound of democracy. They're my they're my mantras over the next few days and, and coming weeks. Thank you so much, Julian, for coming back onto the podcast again for the second time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Julian. I hope uh, some people will be going home and listening to people and giving them that great gift today. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.